Welcome. Welcome. Well, listen, that took like nine months to write. And it, at the end, it was brutal. It was to the point of, I, I just got to get, I'm done with this. I'm just going to put this out there and let it go. You know, I'd been thinking for a long time about the whole transition process and and how do we, how do we make this something that was really fungible for people who are going through it. And yeah. I thought when I originally started that, um, I talked to somebody who was going to help me publish the book and it was in, in July. And I said, yeah, I'll be done with it in August. And then August came and went. And then I was like, well, I'll have it done by the end of the year. And then the end of the year came and went. And then I was like, okay, well, I'm going to get it done by, by June. And if it's not done by June, I'm done. And I got it done in June, uh, crawling across the finish line. And then went through a couple of months to actually do the whole publishing part of that. And so it was, it took a lot longer than I thought or that I expected, but mm -hmm. got that out there. So I think a lot of what I do is, is I don't really necessarily know what I'm doing when I get into it, but I have a way of figuring it out. Uh, and that's basically what I did with the book. Yeah, listen, uh, um, Shauna is, she is a great ally to have um, and to person to know. Mm -hmm. And there's very few mm -hmm. issues that yeah. deal with wellness, uh, combat service that she is not an expert to, to, to talk about. And if you just look at her background and when we wrote the book, she, you know, one of the things that we had talked about was, is, well, we don't want to. We don't want to talk about this from the trauma perspective. I had no idea that she was also like her specialty was relationships. Um, and that's really the angle by which she provided for the book. And then, she, as you know, she wrote another book called Warrior for. That really addressed a lot of the other issues that returning veterans uh, go through. Um, and she is. Mm -hmm. If I, I'll tell you this, if I've got a question about mental health and wellness within this population, one of the first people that I'm reaching out to is Shona Springer. Welcome to the Medal of Honor podcast with your host, Tiffany Marching, a retired military veteran of 24 years. In this week's episode... Tiffany speaks with Army veteran Jason Roncorani of Ponte Vedra, Florida. While on active duty, Jason served as a UH-60 pilot. Not only was he a pilot and a battalion commander, but he also earned the Senior Aviator Batch, Combat Action Batch, Airborne Wings, Air Assault Batch, and Joint Staff Batch. Jason is the founder and president of Ordinary Hero Coaching Incorporated. As a professional certified coach, PCC, from the International Coach Federation, he provides executive coaching for military and non-military leaders. His specialty includes transition coaching for senior leaders and members of the special operations community and executive leaders in the corporate world. He is the best-selling author of the book Beyond the Military, a leader's handbook for warrior reintegration, and he has also created innovative, 
award-winning programs designed to reframe the process of military transition to help leaders achieve a more empowering life beyond the military. Jason is a 06 co-founder and creator of a program that combines coaching, teaching, and mentoring in a unique, comprehensive program of leadership development. He is responsible for developing a disruptive program of engagement and experiential learning that capitalizes on the best practices of leadership development from the military through the science of organizational behavior and psychology for non-military, civilian applications. Jason is also responsible for transforming organizational culture and potential by building resilient, adaptive, and dependable leaders with the confidence, competence, and commitment to thrive and win in the volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. As the executive coach at the Commit Foundation, Jason provides executive coaching to military leaders and professionals in the special operations community to discover their path in life beyond the military. He specializes in helping leaders uncover their values, find their purpose, set their intentions for the life they want, and harness the confidence to take a step up for the second half of their life. For over 30 years, Jason has inspired leaders to bridge the gap between confidence and potential. He has held leadership positions in the military, nonprofit, small business, and corporate sectors including more than 10 years of executive-level experience. His mission is to inspire leaders with the courage and confidence to seize opportunities and thrive in today's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous environment. It's interesting because I joined the military. Not, I didn't know anything about the, about the Army when I was growing up. Uh, my parents wanted their kids to go to college because that was something they didn't have a chance to do when they were growing up. Uh, for me, I wanted to do something different. So when I was a junior in high school, I got invited to go to one of these recruiting events for, for West Point showed up at this event. My dad jokes about it because my hair was a lot longer than it is now. I was wearing a ripped up Led Zeppelin t-shirt and I had Chuck Taylor high tops on. So I didn't look anything like a cadet or let alone a future officer in the army. But when I sat through this, you know, they showed guys jumping out of airplanes and tanks and stuff exploding, movement to contact lanes, hellfires going off the rail. I bought that recruiting pitch hook, line, and sinker. And it wasn't that I fell in love with the Army, but that was different. And I just wanted to do something different. And that's why I ended up at West Point when I graduated high school. Interestingly enough, I didn't know anything about the military either. So I had no idea what I was getting myself into. My grandfather was drafted into the Navy during World War II. I just knew that I needed to figure out what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. So I figured I was going to sign up for the Army for four years, figure out what I wanted to do, and then get out the military and go do it. So you graduate from West Point, you get commissioned into the Army, and this pilot thing came up. 
Like, was that something that you kind of had your eyes set on of, I'm going to go big or go home and fly this aircraft or, or what? What was that process like? I guess when I was there, the only thing I really wanted to do was I wanted to jump out of airplanes because that was the thing that brought me there in the first place. And then if I wanted to and I was qualified to, I wanted to fly. And so that was when you're looking at, you know, at the time I'm 18 years old and I just turned 18 when I went to West Point. I had no idea what I wanted to do with my life. In fact, I chose my major there based on what all my friends were doing. With the rationale being that if I'm going to be sitting in these classes all day, I want to be sitting with people whose company I enjoy. So I, I didn't really have a lot of direction other than jump out of airplanes and learn how to fly. Um, and that was really the only motivations that I had when it came to the Army. I, For the most part, I kept the Army at, at arm's reach uh, the whole time that I was in. Um, the first time, because again, I, I just never embraced it as something that I was going to do full time uh, for a career. You said the first time. Yeah. It sounds like there's a story behind that. Do you care to elaborate? There was. Um, so I let's be clear. When I was a junior officer, I was not the ideal example of a military officer. And I, I wasn't the... West Pointers gone wild uh, scenario that, you know, because we're free, now we're going to be going crazy. I just never, because I never embraced the army, I was defiant towards the military institution. Did not have a good attitude. I was arrogant. I was um, condescending. I, I, I chalk it all up to immaturity and insecurity because um, I, I was just a young kid, at the, uh, and I never really embraced the military. My, my plan the whole time was that I was going to get out as soon as I could. I was going to wave my West Point degree over my head like a chem light in the middle of the night and just wait for everybody to come towards me and give me these great jobs. And for the most part, that's kind of what happened. Um, I got, I went through uh, one junior officer hiring company. I went to a hire, single hiring conference where I had 11 second interviews. I had six job offers. So in my head, I nailed the dismount on this whole army thing. And I was going to put it all behind me. I'm going to move on with my life. So as I'm going forward and doing that, I got hired at a company where I was a what was called a manufacturing process engineer. And this company dealt with optoelectronics, which I knew nothing about, but I didn't have to because my responsibility was to oversee one part of the production process. So I was a non-union employee working in a production facility that was staffed by union personnel. And what we basically did was, for lack of a better term, was is we glued an input and an output onto this fiber device and let it cure and sent it out and made a lot of money off. And if that sounds boring, because technically I couldn't work on the stations because I wasn't a union, uh, I was more of an engineer. And quite frankly, I didn't know anything about the electrical engineering side of the stuff. My degree was more in mechanical engineering. Um, <clears throat> I had no idea 
how to do that job. But if it sounds boring, it's because for my part, it was. Um, I didn't like it at all. And my plan at the time was that I was going to take advantage of the company's education policy. I was going to get my MBA. And then I was going to go off and find something else to do, which was a good plan at the time. About eight months in, now we're in like the spring of 2001. And that's when the dot-com bubble burst. And when the dot-com bubble burst, um, all of a sudden, that market for the things that we built completely dried up. And so where I worked, there were three manufacturing processing plants within driving distance of one another and they're in southeastern Pennsylvania. And when the dot-com bubble burst, the tech industry collapsed, I was one of 20 to 30,000 people that were laid off from their jobs. So the plan that I had was out the window. Um, and so the problem that I faced was is that I had no idea how to find a job because I relied on one of these junior officer hiring companies to help me in the process. So I didn't know what I was doing. Even if I did, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew I wasn't thrilled with engineering, but quite frankly, even if I wanted to be an engineer, they just laid off, I mean, hundreds of people who had a hell of a lot more experience than I did. So why would you? hire me. So <clears throat> I was doing nothing other than shotgunning resumes on monster.com, probably 10 to 20 a day. Didn't know how to do a resume, didn't know how to do a cover letter. I'm sure that whatever I was sending out there was garbage, but I didn't know what else to do. So that's what I was doing. Now, because I was laid off, I did get some unemployment benefits. But when those benefits ran out, I was flat broke. I didn't have any income coming in. I didn't have any. Uh, I didn't have any um, benefits, uh, compensation for healthcare, nothing like that. And I obviously didn't have a job at the time. So uh, I, at the age of 30 years old, I had to move back in with my parents because quite frankly, my other option was, is that, I mean, I could have been homeless because I sure as hell couldn't pay my rent because I couldn't even pay for my car bill. So that's where I was at the time. And I'm not getting any traction looking for a job, partly because I don't know what I'm looking for. I have no idea what I'm doing. Uh, and I, I was not prepared to do any of this. So one of the ideas that I had at the time was that I was going to go and join the Coast Guard. I was going to go fly for them because I got a lot of flight time as a junior officer. And I figured, well, going to the Coast Guard, it's not the Army. I'll go fly for them for a little bit and get some decision space to figure out what the hell am I going to do with my life here? So in the process of doing the research to figure that out, what I found out was is that I was placed on the inactive ready reserve when I left the Army. So what that meant was is I couldn't just sign up for the Coast Guard. I had to actually get released by the Army and then do a service transfer to the Coast Guard. And what that meant was is that I had to reach out to old bosses and people for endorsements and approvals in order to recommendations to do this. Well, if you remember, I mean, I was a jackass as a junior officer. 
And I had plenty of people trying to coach me along and say, hey, look, if you really took this army thing seriously, you might be good at it. and You might actually like what you're doing. And my response to all of that the whole time was basically, hey, you know, screw the world, double middle fingers to all of you. I'm going to get out and I'm going to be better than any, any of you thought. Uh, you're all going to be working for me someday. I'm going to leave this army and all of you are going to be in the dust. That was my attitude. Well, now I am on flat on my back, um, living at home, dead broke. And I, I need their help. So my strategy at the time was is that I was going to reach out to four people. And my hope was is that just one of these people was going to respond to me because I was in the frame of mind that I'm not sure that I would have responded if I would reached out, uh, given my attitude at the time. Okay, that's all well and good. I spent all weekend crafting this email. Um, reaching out, identify these four people, and I was going to send this email out on a Monday. And my goal is I was going to wait till Friday. And hopefully by Friday, I heard something. Because this was my plan A, and I'm not really sure I had a good plan B. I was working in a bar at the time um, because I was just needed some money coming in. And fortunately for me, four people reached back out to me and within 24 hours. And they all said some version of the same thing, which was basically, hey, Jason, you got to reach out to us or give us a call. and We can talk through this. And that's when I started to have real honest conversations about where I was in my life and where I was going to go. And one of the mentors that I had, his name was Bob Bearer. And he asked me, he made a couple observations, asked me a series of questions, which fundamentally changed my life. So one of the questions he asked me, or actually the observation he made was, is that since the day I joined the army, I had been doing nothing other than sprinting away from it as fast as I can go. And he's absolutely right. That's exactly what I'd been doing. So the first question he asked me was, is how's that going for you? Which, you know, I'm a 30-year-old man, flat broke, living at home, obviously not going very well. The second question he asked me, and this is what really intrigued me, was what would it look like if you ran the other way and you actually went all in with this army thing? And throughout, I mean, I've been associated with the army now for almost 12 years, never considered it, had never once considered that I would be all in and make this a career. Yes, I wanted to do well, but I never embraced this as part of my journey. And so that's what I did. And I committed and said, look, I'm going to come back in the army. And I know that they're going to bump me back a couple of year groups and it's going to be a harder path to go. But maybe this is what I need to do. And what's interesting is, is I sent him a confirmation email saying, hey, sir, I'm going to come back in the army. And I sent that on September 10th, 2001. And so next day is 9-11. And at that point, I was I was all in. And then I had my second journey through the army. And, and I did the tough jobs. I did the things that were harder. And truth be told, throughout all of that, I, I loved it. And I worked with amazing people, had great experiences. But in the back of my head, the whole time that I'm out there doing army, I know that I'm going to leave again. 
And now I've got a wife, I've got two kids, probably can't move back in with my parents. So I had to figure out how I was going to do something different. Um, and one of the things that I did was, is I got a degree in industrial organizational psychology, which if you're asking yourself, what can you do with that degree? The answer is, is I'm, I still don't know. But what I would tell you is, is that that was, I was 30 years old. And that was the first time I made a decision about something that I wanted to do that wasn't transactional. And so that was the significance of that. The other thing that happened was, is that I got my MBA. And when I got my MBA, one of the things that they did was, is they put me through uh, something that was like the ASVAB. And um, when I went through the ASVAB, they, um, it, you put in your education, your experience and whatnot. And then this regurgitates all of the uh, professions that are ideal for you. And for me, the job that jumped off the top of the page was to be a coach. And I did not believe that that was a job at all. I had no idea what I was looking for still. I knew a little bit about some of the things that that were important to me, but I had no idea what was out. So when I actually retired from the military, so this is the second time that I left, I was relying primarily on if I could find the idea that if I can find a job that sounded like the job I was just doing, I'll be fine. And that didn't work out. And if you were to bookend the first time that I left the military and the second time that I left the military, you're going to get a three-year arc where I had eight different jobs. And at one point, I'm staring at a computer screen. And I had to update my resume, send in a new cover letter for an opportunity to potentially work program management. And um, I didn't have the energy to do it anymore. And that's when I started to figure out what I currently do right now, which is doing this job as a professional coach. Um, and I had no idea what I was doing at the time. I had no idea how to form a business or do any of that. And I've been bouncing against the guardrails ever since. And so, you know, my journey through the military is that I had two chances to transition. I transitioned poorly both times. Um, and that's why I do a lot of the work that I do now. So that's a very long answer to the question that you asked about both times that I left the military. Yeah, I, I didn't go through Soldier for Life. I went through um, the the ACAP program. Yeah. So long time ago. Um, yeah. The first time. The second time it was Soldier for Life. Yeah. But it wasn't. Uh, you know, they've made so many improvements to it. It's it's such a different experience now. Mm -hmm. I mean, between Skillbridge and everything else, like I didn't, I didn't have any of that. You know, we can definitely talk about this more, but a large reason why I do the work that I do now is because I of what I've experienced. Um, mm -hmm. Because transition, you know, like transition is from the military life to civilian life is a is a pretty big transition or a pretty big deal where many of us have had difficulties in.
And so you came up with this um, a workbook, in a sense. I did. Can you talk about the book and how it panned out and developed? Sure. So um, when I when I made the decision to um, enter this space to help people because I had done my transition so miserably, um, the the challenge was is is how can I understanding how uncomfortable it is in the space? How do you do this to scale? How do you provide a resource that? <coughs> excuse me that military leaders will understand. Uh, and, and my goal was to focus on more of the military leaders. So I'm looking at, you know, the, the E7 and above population, the O4 and above population was really what I was targeting, uh, the W3s, W4s, W5s. And the reason why I was targeting that population was because, I mean, and when I went through the transition experience, it was very calibrated towards the majority of people who are leaving the service. So you're looking at a lot of junior officers, junior enlisted. Um, and so the way that the transition program was structured was to target the main populations in transition. And when I was basically an outlier in that population, um, you know, the number of people, the the senior level people who are leaving the military is a very small percentage annually of who's actually leaving the military. And so I wanted to create a resource that was more focused towards them. And <clears throat> given the uncertainty and the ambiguity of the transition process, I wanted to anchor it into something that they recognized. And so that's how I tied it to basically the design methodology and the operations process. I figured if I can break transition down, then maybe they'll discover more of these integral identity-related issues as they're transitioning in a positive way so that as they do, they can um, step off with confidence and know what they're looking for because they're qualified to do so many things. But the challenge was, is that how do I orient that when I'm no longer wearing the uniform? <clears throat> and so that's what I tried to do with the book. You know, when I was in a conversation recently with a group of people, one of the things that came up about transition was the the difficulty that it co that comes about, as well as um, in some cases the leadership. You know, the audience for your book, the leadership, we're not going to pay you to transition and leave the workforce. We're going to. Um... <clears throat> yeah. it, And I think what I would say about that is, and I think the military has gotten a lot better when you look at like the skill bridge opportunities now where I can go work for somebody for four to six months and get used to the culture the social assimilation and all of those qualities that are inherent in the transition process while still working in the DOD. I think those are great programs. Um, and I think it's a tremendous step forward. Um, the argument that I always made <clears throat> about transition is that it really should be treated um, as that these veterans are the best and strongest advocates for growing and retaining the force in the future. Because as you 
transition, your level of success beyond the military is what should inspire men and women to to enter the military in the first place. Um, And so you do that by showcasing all these veterans who are out there doing these amazing things when they're done with the military. Um, The Army, back when you and I were growing up, they used to have that the tagline of be all that you can be. And they used to market the army as an opportunity to uh, the way they even said in the commercials, Hey, get an edge on life, find your future in the army. So the army was a stepping stone into something that was greater after the military. Um, And I think that's the right perspective to approach this with is that we're all beings that need to grow. And when you stop growing, that's when you start dying. So when you transition from the military, um, you should never be accepting on a psychological level that, hey, you're going to step back or you need to start over. You're completely discounting all the experience that you've had up to this point. And it should be a step forward. Now, that step forward may look different for everybody, but inherently – Uh, you should be taking a step forward as you leave the military. And so there's a lot of great programs that are out there. And I like the framework of successful veterans are going to encourage the most competitive, uh, most qualified recruits to sign up on the front end. Because as our military continues to get smaller in comparison to the population, we really need to be attracting the best recruits for service. For me, the Army's slogan, Be All That You Can Be, is the best one by far. It surpasses the Army of One or Army Strong. I because agree. I think, yeah, there's, I think there's a lot of power in that. I, I mean, just to, just to even think about that slogan, to, to be all that I can be. I mean, be everything that I can and, and am able to do um, says a lot. Uh, you know, we, with the with the slogans of the Army of One or um, Army Strong, but <laughs> Army Strong does not explain anything to me. It doesn't tell me anything. Like what it, it prompts the question of what does that mean? What does it mean to be Army Strong or the army of one. Uh, okay, one team, one fight, maybe. But yeah. you hear the slogan, "Be all." We're all be. part of the same thing. We are all yeah. one. You know, we're people from different backgrounds. But the fact that you and I are having a conversation, trying to understand what that means, shows the vulnerabilities of that as a marketing approach. Um, yeah. You know, if it's not clear. Um, if you have to explain to people what it means, then it might not be the best, the best option um, <clears throat> for you. And I, and I think that's why they changed to to Army Strong. I, um, I'm a big fan of of the the simplicity of be all that you can be. That speaks to me. That speaks to the team that I'm on. Um, I really really like that. But again, that could be a generational thing too. That could be my own bias coming through. Uh, And that might not be the exact message that resonates with the younger generation. And that's fine. Um, You know, because I'm definitely not the person they're trying to recruit nowadays. Uh, Nope. You and me. Not at my age. (laughs) 
yeah, you know, that's, that's, uh, but it, it's to me also be all that you can be is simplistic um, and, and powerful at the same time because you don't like you said you don't have to explain it and, and you want to you want a good strong team well if I go and I be all that I can and you be all that you can that's going to be a great team because everybody's giving a hundred and ten percent and doing the best of their ability. Um, but again, what do I know? <laughs> like I said, we are not who they are trying to get to sign up to serve nowadays. So I can understand why perhaps we don't get the message. Yeah. So now, now, now that you've been out for the, out of the military for a little bit, yeah. um, what what does life look like for you as a veteran? What 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 um, pushes you to move forward each day? Um, and and I think one thing that I would say is you know with you writing a book mm-hmm. um, for the military community, um, I think is a powerful thing because it shows that you're investing. And the future of the military, even though you're no longer in uniform, is that uh, a, a big part of your um, mission now as a veteran? Well, I see my own personal mission is to uh, bridge the gap between confidence and potential. And for me personally, when you look at everything that's been going on in our country, um, some of the things that that we're seeing here um, that are happening, you know, whether it's uh, we've got civil unrest, we've got social unrest, we've got racial unrest, we've got so many problems in this country. And one of the things that I personally believe is that our veteran leaders uh, have the ability and the capacity and the wherewithal to help bring our nation together. And so one of the reasons why I do the things that I do is because I want to inspire those who have been remarkably successful leaders in the military to now go out and be the leaders in their communities, uh, in their neighborhoods, in their school districts, in their states across this nation to help us become closer together and to break down the polarization and the infighting and the divisiveness, which has really characterized our nation as of late. Um, I want us to come together and be better as a nation. And I think that uh, military leaders in particular, because we grow up uh, in an environment that is very uncertain, very ambiguous, where we have to really focus on people because people are the only constant. And so let's bring those qualities out into the civilian sector and hopefully help bring our nation together. And that's in a very macro sense. That's what I try to do now in a very micro sense. That means a lot of one on one conversations, uh, very intimate uh, engagements with people to help them unlock that potential for what's going to happen after the military. Thank you. Have a nice day.
have a nice day.